Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off as normal by talking about the market this week. Obviously, it's been a very choppy market so far this year. How have things looked this week, Simon? Yeah, I think choppy is absolutely the right description. So the investment company sector, certainly for the first four trading days of the week, found itself in negative territory once again. It was down 2.1%. And that actually represented a partial recovery after we saw a fall of 3.9% on Monday for the investment company sector. And in fact, that was the worst day for the sector since March 2020. So going back to the early days of the pandemic. Um, The wider UK market actually wasn't doing too badly the first four days of the week. It was in positive territory, up about 0.3%, though we have seen a sell-off on Friday. So we'll have to see how it ends up for the week. But looking at investment companies, I mean, it clearly has been a bumpy period. We have seen discounts move around the place. It probably started the week about 3.8%, went as wide as 6.2% on that Monday sell-off and closed Friday about 4.1%. So certainly kind of flying around a little bit. But look, Markets are very skittish at the moment. There's clearly quite a lot of things to, to worry about. We have seen the Russell 2000, which is the index of US smaller companies, enter bear territory. So it's sold off more than, I think, 20% from its peak. Uh, we also continue to see the rotation uh, from growth stocks into uh, value stocks. And, and, and clearly, there is a lot to worry about, a lot of discussion about how Russia is poised to invade Ukraine, despite um, clear Western opposition. Uh, there's obviously implications for the energy prices then. We've seen the oil price uh, increase again, and a lot of speculation about the impact of financial sanctions on uh, various institutions. And also inflationary concerns are not going away. And the Fed, the US Federal Reserve signaled this week that it would probably be in March that we would see a rate rise. Though all that aside, some of the actual updates from the companies themselves continue to be positive. So we've seen a very positive statement from Microsoft this week. Their cloud computing business is going very strongly. And also Tesla as well, one of the most fetid growth companies, uh, posted a a positive quarterly update. So not all bad news. So this seems to me like one of these periods in the stock market where there's all sorts of inferences flying around, things that people to worry about, as you say. But ultimately, it's going to be driven by the performance of companies and the kind of value that investors put on those companies, unless we have a major geopolitical disruption, which, of course, is something we've had in the past, uh, not very often, fortunately, uh, and that can often lead to a retreat from risk assets and so on. So a lot going on, and, and a period in which we've seen a lot of rotation, as you say, some of the bigger names in the index, the investment trust sector in particular, like uh, Scottish mortgage at 10% of the sector is uh, has taken a, a bit of a beating, as of many other growth trusts, technology, better given, and so on. So yeah, this is an interesting period. And uh, this is a one where I think where, um, you know, it calls for um, cool heads, shall we say, to try and navigate your way through this. I mean, it's not necessarily a cause of panic, but it is certainly uh, some extra volatility. And I guess when you're talking to clients, you had a client conference recently, do you feel that uh, clients are becoming more nervous or taking more account of these uh, external worries? Yeah, I mean, I think for the reasons that we've just outlined, I think you, you can't ignore what's going on in the wider world. Um, and I think it's just natural at this time of the year that people look to rebalance their portfolios. I mean, we've had a period where over the last few years, or probably longer, frankly, growth assets have done very well. And it's just a natural thing to 
maybe people to kind of take a little profit out of some of those growth names and look to kind of rebalance that and have some more value or, or kind of more uh, protective uh, type assets in their portfolios. Equally, we have seen some people this week get involved with some of those growth names, happy to add to their allocations and believe that this is quite an attractive entry point. So as always with markets, it's, it's different views that make it. Indeed. And uh, in terms of the discounts that we talked about, they've been, they've been widening out a little bit. And that's particularly true in the equity investment trust sector. So some of the trusts that uh, have done very well, you certainly are now available at uh, what appears to be quite attractive discounts in any event, somewhere between, you know, maybe between 5 and 10% if you're got an investment trust that's got a, a discount control mechanism. You'll be thinking, well, if I'm buying this for the longer term, this is probably a, a good opportunity. But as you say, we don't know for sure. So let's move on and talk about some things we do know for sure. And that is what's been happening in terms of announcements this week. Our normal running order is corporate activity. Then we talk about fundraising and then we move on to talk about results. And that's the pattern we always follow and the one we're going to continue today. So we're going to kick off with uh, a little bit of corporate activity news. There's not a huge amount, but uh, we're going to start off with EP Global Opportunities, ticker EPG, where we know there's a change afoot. And what's the latest on that one? Yeah, so this is a bit of housekeeping. I think we talked about this one at length towards the end of last year. Basically, shareholders voted in favour back in December, actually, in favour of proposals to become a self-managed investment trust. So Sandy Nairn, who's been the long-standing fund manager of this one, is, is going to continue to take control. But this week, we found out about the details of a tender offer for up to 20% of the fund's share capital. That tender price will be at a level equivalent to the NAV as at the 24th of February, lesser 2% discount and expenses. And the results of that tender will be published on the 28th of February, so the end of February, basically. Yes, well, as regulators know, I've cooperated with Sandy Nairn on a number of book projects uh, over the years, including one about the great uh, value investor, John Templeton, for whom uh, Sandy worked in his early part of his career. And uh, he's taken a, a particularly bearish stance. We've uh, talked about the current situation, but he's been bearish certainly for some time and uh, published this book last year called The End of the Everything Bubble, in which he predicted there's going to be some kind of major sell-off in the markets. And the new strategy that EP Global Opportunity is going to adopt is geared, I think, to take advantage of a different investment climate. But the tender offer, I mean, the performance of the trust has been disappointing over several years. Uh, one imagines this tender offer is going to be taken up by a number of investors. And then after that, we'll have to see what happens. But what are the shares trading at at the moment? So I've got them at Sunday at the close of Thursday on a discount of about 9%. Uh, and that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about an 8% discount. And so if you have an opportunity to take up a tender offer at a 2% discount, you imagine that the way the share price has moved at least, that would indicate that there will be uh, probably a full take up of that uh, tender offer. And after that, we'll have to see how the trust in its new guise performs. Okay, we're going to move on and talk about JP Morgan European Investment Trust, which has uh, both a growth and an income arm. That's ticker JETG and JETI. They've also been doing some uh, housekeeping to uh, make some changes. Yeah, that's right. So I think this is one that we discussed again towards the end of last year. And these were proposals. So this investment trust, as you say, had the two share classes, a growth leg and an income leg. The proposal was to put them together and adopt an enhanced income policy and enhanced dividend. The idea is that the portfolio will be run as the growth portfolio is being run at the moment. This required shareholders approval, which was forthcoming on the 24th of January. Shareholders voted in favour of that proposal and the results of the restructuring expected to be announced on the 3rd of February with dealing in the new shares to commence the following day. But this fund will be renamed the JP Morgan 
European Growth and Income Investment Trust. And what's been happening to the share price and the rating of this one? Uh, Does it look like investors are happy with this proposal or or not? So there has been too much change to the rating. So I've got the growth uh, share class on about a 12% discount, the income share class on about a 13% discount. And they have said as part of the proposals, they will look to use buybacks to ensure that the the discount remains as a single digit, i.e. not go wider than than 10%. So it'd be interesting to see just how that plays out. But by dint of putting those two portfolios, you've created a, a vehicle with assets of £445 million in a single share class. Okay, and just remind us what the rationale behind this change is. What's the thinking that's driven this proposal to put the two together? So I think there's a few things going on here. I mean, I think, you know, the, the income share class has probably had a bit more of a, a kind of value quantitative type style that hasn't really proven particularly successful in recent years. The growth leg has outperformed. So I think there's kind of been performance issues. And I think there's also an awareness that, you know, it comes back to what we talked about before about the need to have larger investment trust vehicles, which has resulted in a number of mergers. In this case, it's more a consolidation. It's bringing the two share classes together to create, as I say, a vehicle with, you know, a decent pool of assets, which should therefore improve its liquidity in the secondary market and offer a broader appeal to investors. Well, that's one to watch then to see how well that works out. We're going to move on to fundraising, where there has been more fundraising, as we rather thought there would be, notwithstanding the fact that the markets have been so choppy. Normally, you'd think that would be a disincentive or a a barrier to fundraising. But this fundraising is all in the specialist alternative asset space, uh, perhaps as you might expect. Let's kick off with Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, ticker CORD which is one of two new investment trusts that specialize in digital assets or infrastructure to enable us to use the internet and many other aspects of modern digital life. So how did they get on with their fundraising? Yeah, they got on very well, to be honest. So they announced this week that they'd raised gross proceeds of £200 million, and that was replacing of uh, just short of 189 million shares at a price of 106p per share. That represented a 4% premium to the NAV at the end of September. And this was a placing that was oversubscribed. So if you remember, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Cordiant announced that they'd made an acquisition of a business called Emitel, which is a multi-platform digital infrastructure business based in Poland. I think they spent just over £350 million on that acquisition. So this fundraising was basically needed to pay for that acquisition. They had some financing in the eventuality that the placing hadn't been successful. Clearly, it has, it has been oversubscribed. And this represents another milestone for Cordian. Actually, they have been incredibly successful since they came to the market less than a year ago. Their IPO back in February last year, they raised 370 million. They issued a C share in June of last year, raised 185 million. And yet now they find themselves with a market cap of 820 million pounds, which for an investment company that's existed less than a year has, has certainly been very successful. So it hasn't actually yet produced its first annual results. We don't even know how how it's fared in its first 12 months. That is certainly uh, pretty good going, it has to be said. And then there's a second one, which is Digital 9 Infrastructure, ticker DGI9, uh, who've also been out raising money. How have they fared uh, in comparison? Well, they were successful. They raised £95 million, but that was short of the target. I think at the time they said they were looking to raise more than that. I think £200 million was the target that they had in mind. Clearly, they're some way south of that. But they, they have been successful. They issued 88 million new ordinary shares at a price of 108p. That represented a 4.5% premium to NAV. And those new shares began trading uh, at the end of the week on Friday. But quite interesting to see the difference because obviously Digital 9 and Cordiant are in the same space. 
accordion, very, very successful, digital line, a little bit less so. I mean, there's a number of different reasons why that might be the case. Potentially, I think Digital Nine had said they were going to use the proceeds. They had a, a near-term pipeline of about £325 million set up. Whereas in the case of Cordian, it was an investment deal that had already been in place. So that's probably the key difference in, the, in this circumstance. But I guess the broader picture is that there's still demand out there for this kind of asset. And they're able to raise, which are, which are still quite significant sums. I mean, £200 million, you know, even in uh, terms of recent uh, investment trust history, is certainly a decent amount of money to get through the placing particularly, as you say, when it's such a new company. So maybe there's an element of fashion about that, or maybe it's just two very good businesses. We'll have to see. Uh, Move on and talk about Impact Healthcare REIT, ticker IHR, which is another of these specialist property companies. They're proposing to raise some money, I think. Yeah, that's right. So they announced this week they were looking to raise up to £50 million via an open offer, an initial placing, an offer for subscription, an intermediaries offer, that issue price will be at 114p, and that represents a 2.7% discount to their NAV, or certainly their NAV at the end of November. So what they're going to do with the money? Well, they're going to initially look to pay down their credit facility. That stands about £68 million at the moment. But they've also got a number of acquisitions in advanced legal discussions, and they're valued at £69 million. They've also got a medium to longer term pipeline of about £290 million, so not a shortage of new investment opportunities. So we're going to find out how this one goes on about the 16th of February, or certainly that's when the initial issue is due to close, and they'll announce the results the following day. Okay, this might be a good moment to mention that for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, we've done a profile of LXI REIT, which is a specialist property investment trust that has also been in the news recently, looking to raise some more money been very successful so far. And we've also done a very interesting uh, interview with Simon Edelston, who is the manager of the uh, Midwine Investment Trust, which is uh, a good long-term performer, has some very interesting views on what's happening in the markets at the moment. I think you'll find that useful to listen to about what he sees it might be happening in the markets at the moment. So we're going to move on and talk about uh, Polar Capital Global Financials, ticker PCFT. Regular listeners will know this is a, a obviously a specialist trust that invests mainly in banks, uh, but also in other financial companies. And uh, two years ago, it sort of came back from the dead. It had a tender offer where nearly 50% of the shares were tendered, but just not enough to put it out of business. And now suddenly, two years later, it's back very much in favor and it's looking to raise some more money, I think. That's right. And I think we talked last week about how it already signaled that it needed to renew its issuance powers and they were also minded to, to create some kind of liquidity event. Obviously, investors or potential investors had been in touch with them. And we found out a few more details of that this week. So they're looking to do a proposed placing under the existing placing program. That has the capacity to issue up to 378 million new ordinary shares. And the placing price would be at a 1.5% premium to NAV at the closing date of the placing, which is the 31st of January. So basically on Monday where the new shares will begin trading on the 3rd of February. How are those shares trading at the moment? They're trading, I imagine, at a premium, although they wouldn't be doing this probably. But uh, how are they trading and how have they been performing uh, over the last period? What's the, the prospect they're holding out to uh, investors who might come into this placing? Yeah, so they're, they're trading on about a 2% premium. Certainly, they were at the close of Thursday. In terms of the performance record, well, as discussed, the market has uh, sold off recently. They haven't, particularly in, in share price terms over the last month, they're, they're flat and they're actually up in NAV terms. And over the longer term, I mean, over the last three years, NAV total returns up about 44%, uh, even better in share price terms, up 52% over the last three years. 
So if you believe that we are moving into a new environment, this is uh, one you might want to look at because uh, most people would expect if we are moving into a period of rising bond yields, uh, as long as the uh, yield curve stays positive, then uh, you would expect banks to do well under that kind of in, uh, thing. And the banks are raining what this uh, particular trust does, along with some uh, fintech, as I recall. So while still on the fundraising topic, uh, let's talk also about JLEN, Environmental Assets, ticker J-L-E-N, who've uh, also in the business of raising money. So they announced this week that they had raised just short of £61 million, and that was via a significantly oversubscribed placement offer for subscription. Those 60.1 million new ordinary shares will be issued at a price of 101p, and they will begin trading on Tuesday, 1st of February. Okay, and so is that a significant raise for this uh, company? I imagine it's quite a bit bigger than that. Yeah, so it's a, it's a decent size fund. They've got a market cap of over £600 million. And when they last came to the market, that was in May last year, they raised £57 million. As mentioned, it was this one was uh, significantly oversubscribed. They're going to use the proceeds to repay uh, their debt facility and fund a pipeline of environmental infrastructure opportunities. Okay, so that's in keeping with the general trend of fundraising in that sector. So that's the fundraising. We move on and talk about results now. And we are going to start in the flexible investment sector with the BMO managed portfolio. It has, again, this growth and income arms to it. Uh, this is managed by a gentleman called Peter Hewitt, who uh, we had on the Moneymaker Circle only a few days ago. So tell us how he's been performing. So we had interim results out for BMO managed portfolio and then for the six months to the end of November. So for the income shares, they were up 1.7% in NAV total return terms. The growth shares did a bit better, actually. They were up 5%, uh, and that compares with a rise of 1.9% for the FTSE all shares. So both legs are doing pretty well. The key performers for the growth portfolio, uh, including names such as Allianz Technology, HG Capital, and Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. And again, it's worth noting that this is the six-month period to the end of November the income portfolio, the best performers included MB Private Equity, which I think is a name we've talked about and is one of the, the, the private equity names that actually pays a dividend, so therefore becomes a valid member of that income portfolio, and also 3i Infrastructure. But in terms of the net revenue return of the income share class, that came in at 3.54p. They've actually rebased the quarterly dividends as well, um, so they gave a bit of detail around that. But actually, for me, probably the most interesting comment was the what actually Peter's doing at the moment. As you mentioned, Peter is a hugely experienced uh, investor, undoubtedly a veteran of the investment company sector, but he's looking to rotate away from some of the technology high growth companies. And the areas that he believes are the most interesting at the moment are uh, UK equity trusts, particularly those who are mid and small cap bias, and also European equities. And that's really driven by what he regards as the valuation opportunities. Yes, and he talked about some of these themes in the Q&A that we did. And uh, always interesting, as, a, as someone who invests solely in other investment trusts, it's always useful to compare the thinking of people like Peter and uh, Nick Greenwood of Mighton Global Opportunities, who we're also going to be talking to quite soon uh, about his thinking about where we are. Particularly interesting in view of the uh, significant uh, market movements we've seen in the last month. And just tell us how those shares are trading as well. I mean, he's been quite popular with uh, retail investors. Tell us how the trust been performing. No, they tend to trade quite well, actually. So the growth share class is probably on about a 2% premium at the moment, compared to an average of 1% over the previous 12 months. Uh, and equally, the income share class on about a 3% premium. 
That compares with an average 2% premium over the previous 12 months. But obviously, as we said, I just might be worth checking here. I mean, some of those names that you mentioned, Alliance Technology, Scottish Mortgage, HG Capital Trust, they've been kind of in the eye of the storm recently in terms of the uh, movement in the market. So how have the actual shares of the trust uh, performed? Yeah, so we talked about the, the long-term record or certainly that six-month record, and both have performed well over the longer term. But just over the last month, not too much of a surprise. The growth portfolio has been hit harder. So that's down about 9% just over the last month in NAV terms. The income portfolio down just 4%. So you can see how the different portfolios have fared in, in the current market sell-off. Okay, well, we're going to move on and talk about the Aberforth Split Level Income Trust, ticker ASIT, who've had some interim results. You might just remind us, uh, those who don't know exactly what a split level trust is. Sure. So Aberforth Split Level Income Trust is the sister fund effectively to Aberforth Smaller Companies, which is a conventional investment trust. The difference being that Aberforth Split Level Income Trust has a zero dividend preference share. So it's a form of debt in its uh, capital structure. So at the end of 2021, it is effectively 31% geared by this zero dividend preference share. What that means is that it effectively allows it to pay a higher dividend level because it's a form of debt that you don't have to pay interest on on an ongoing basis. But the results that we found out this week for that particular investment trust were for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they had a, a flat NAV total return, certainly for the ordinary share class, and that compared with a rise about 3.8% for the benchmark. Share price terms, not as good, actually. That was down about 5.3% as the discount widened from about 9% to 14%. The revenue per share, that was up quite significantly, actually. It was a 79% increase from the preceding comparable period, and that came in at 2 spot 09p. And in fact, they've declared an interim dividend of 1 spot 51p, and that was increased 64% on that uh, preceding comparable period as well. And it's actually in line now with the pre-pandemic level. But this portfolio invests in UK smaller companies. Um, it has a real kind of value orientation for it. Uh, and there's about 60, 67 investments or so at the end of last year. Okay, so that's a, a small and rather specialist trust. Let's move on and talk about the Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust, uh, ticker HSL. This is one I follow for many, many years and uh, done very well with, I'm happy to say. But uh, Tell us what their latest results are. Yeah, these were interim results for the six months to the end of November. In that time, they generated an NAV total return. It was actually negative 2.1%, and that compared with a decline of 2.8% for their benchmark, although the peer group actually was up 2.5% in that period. The share price total return, that was also negative. It was down 7.9% as its discount widened out from about 4% to nearer to 10%. In revenue return per share, well, that was actually up quite markedly. And this is a pattern that we're now seeing with a number of these UK funds that are doing very well in terms of the pickup in, in revenue after being hit very hard in 2020. But uh, always a good update from Neil Herman, a very experienced investment manager in this space. I think he's been responsible for this investment trust since the end of 2002. So he's coming up for his 20th anniversary. Um, holdings that work well for him in this period, uh, companies such as Future, Impacts, Asset Management, Marshall Motors Holdings. Um, on the other side of the ledger, Clinogen uh, didn't do quite so well for him in this period. And also not holding companies such as Playtech and Investec uh, acted as a headwind. So but presumably this again has also been affected by the sell-off we've seen, not just in uh, growth stocks, technology and so on, but also in smaller companies have taken a bit of a beating as well. So since the end of November... How has the share price performed? Uh, can you give us some clues to that or over the last three months, say something like that? 
Yeah, so over the last three months, uh, Henderson Smaller Companies' share price is down about 8% or so. Uh, and that compares with you know small cap indices, probably down about 5%. So there's a little bit of underperformance. Clearly, it has outperformed Henderson Smaller Companies over the longer term. So five-year NAV performance up 88% compared with 39% for the NSCI X Investment Companies Index. So there's definitely a little bit of a, a short-term hit. Okay, so uh, let's move on and talk about another trust, which has probably taken a bit of a hit, if I'm not mistaken, and that is Bailey Gifford U.S. Growth Trust, ticker USA. This obviously was uh, one of the first trust to go back into the American market, if you like. It's always been a, a sector where investment trusts have never done particularly well, in common with many uh, managed funds. The UK fund managers find it very difficult to outperform in the US. But uh, Bailey Gifford US Growth, as I recall, got off to a very good start. But uh, tell us what they've had to say about their more recent performance. Yeah, so these are interim results again for the six months to the end of November. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of up 17.2%, and that was basically in line with their benchmark, which is the S&P 500 index. Share price not quite so good. The share price total return was up 9.4%, and that was a reflection of the fact they moved from a 4% premium to a 3% discount. So obviously, in that particular period, a flat NAV performance, but a lot of really interesting commentary from the investment management team about what we're seeing more recently uh, and they make the point uh, in, in the investment manager's report to judge them on a, a five-year performance. There's a quote here I picked up, investing in innovation and entrepreneurship requires bravery. It's Bravery, sorry, is necessary for both entrepreneurs and investors. Uh, and there's another quote, our rucksack is laden with optimism, patience and excitement. Uh, so they're still looking very much on the long term. The private investment side is an important part of the story here. Um, so at the end of November, they had holdings in 23 private companies that represented just short of 21% of the portfolio. And in fact, in that six-month period, they did see three names become public. Three private investments went public, and they were Aurora Innovation, uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, and Warby Parker as well. I would think it's fair to say it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. They got off to a, a tremendous start, but they've had a, a rougher time more recently. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and that's partly what you'd expect. I mean, one of the issues around the whole Bailey Gifford strategy of taking stakes in unlisted companies and increasingly you know, significant stakes in the overall portfolio is that when you get market sell-offs, uh, there's normally or often a tendency for those to drive down the rating of the trust. Is, is that fair? Is that what normally happens? It's kind of partly because of the uncertainty about what the valuations are, but also uh, the fact that they're not liquid, you can't actually sell them. That might discourage some investors. Is that is that the right experience? Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. I mean, uh, there's no two ways about it. Bailey Gifford U.S. Grove has been hit hard this year. I think they're down about 30, 31% in share price terms year to date. It won't be as bad as that in NAV terms, not least because they got 21% or so in private companies. But what we're seeing with uh, Bailey Gifford U.S. Grove, and it's true for another the, the kind of more growth-focused investment trust, is that often they get hit quite hard by those companies that have just recently come to the market and they still retain the exposure to it. So I think we're going to come on and talk about Chrysalis a little bit later on. And it's those newly launched or um, those companies that have just become public often get issued at quite elevated prices, might do well initially. But then during these periods when there's a, a turnaround in market sentiment, they get hit quite hard. And I suspect um, Betty Gifford US growth has, has suffered a little through that. I mean, fair to say, I think uh, looking at the performance, uh, you know, first year they're up more than 100%. So uh, they could live with a little bit of uh, disappointment. But even so, they are they have been affected more than many. 
Okay, move on to talk about Invesco Asia Trust, ticker IAT. They've had some interim results, uh, this time to the 31st of October. That's right. And in that time, they recorded an NAV total return uh, was down. It was negative, down 5.5%. That compared with a fall of 6.2% for their benchmark, the MSCI or Country Asia X Japan Index. Uh, and in share price terms, they were down 4.9% as their discount tightened a little bit. So it was a kind of relative outperform. Uh, and they were helped in that regard by underweight positions in China. Also, stock selection in Hong Kong and Indonesia proved positive. And just in general, uh, more exposure to more cyclical and old economy sectors. Again, perhaps unsurprisingly, several of the biggest detractors uh, were from China. Obviously, some stocks are impacted by regulatory tightening and property related concerns, though the portfolio continues to have selective exposure to Chinese uh, Internet companies. Probably the other key takeaway here, well, there's a couple of things actually. So for one thing is that the, this uh, investment trust pays an enhanced dividend. So basically they return about 2% of the NAV every six months to shareholders. So gets risk power risk, it should be about 4% per year. And also they've uh, announced a change to the management lineup in as much as a lady called Fiona Yang has been appointed co-manager alongside Ian Hargreaves. And that's with immediate effect. Fiona has been with Invesco for nearly five years and she's also responsible for the Asian equity income fund there. So they're beefing up the management team there. Let's move on and talk about an always interesting one which is JP Morgan Russian Securities, ticker JRS. You'd think this might be of interest in view of current events on the continent and the fear of uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it won't have a direct impact but it certainly have an effect on sentiment I would imagine. Uh, they produce some annual results and this is one that uh, I think as we commented before, it's been around for years and it's actually the best performing or was the best performing investment trust over 30 years at the point uh, we looked at it for the investment trust handbook. But of course, it's very, very volatile. It goes up and down in line with the energy price and all sorts of other things. But for this period, I think they had a, a pretty good period. They did indeed. And this period is the annual, the 12 months to the end of October last year. In that time, they saw an NAV total return up 61%. That compared with their index return of 70%. So actually they did well, but the index did even better. Uh, in share price terms, they were up 66%. So that was all good. Um, during the financial year, the managers basically repositioned the portfolio to take advantage of economic recovery. So they tilted uh, more to the energy sector and that proved positive. Um, in contrast, the kind of main reason for the underperformance or relative underperformance was the stock selection in the materials section. They also announced as part of these results that they've revised their dividend policy and they're going to look to move to a quarterly dividends. And there's talk of, uh, well, certainly the board's expectation is that the dividend should total 60p this year. And I know you're going to ask me what that equates to in terms of a yield, where their, their share price at the close of Thursday was £6.70. So that's quite a substantial yield, 60p on £6.70 share yeah, price. 9%. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so that's, you don't, wouldn't normally think of Russia in terms of a yield story, but that's going to become a more important aspect, one suspects. Also, uh, another thing to note is that they had one of these conditional tender offers that ran to the end of October last year. They marginally beat the benchmark during that time, that five-year period. They were up 115.3 compared with the benchmark 114.6. So the tender was not triggered. But what they've done is actually they've put that uh, a similar conditional tender offer in place for the five years to the 31st of October 2026. So let's have the same thing again. Uh, and that would be a 25% tender at a 2% discount. And there's also a commitment to buy back shares up to about 6% in issue if the discount is wider than 
But this uh, investment trust faces a continuation vote. It's five yearly continuation vote in March at its AGM, and we'll see how it fares in that. As I said, it's been very volatile, but if you buy it at the right time and, and sell it at the right time, you can do very well out of this one. But it is uh, very volatile. And uh, how does it trade? What's the rating at the moment? So I've got it on a discount of about 9% or so at the moment, and that compares to an average of about 10% over the previous 12 months. Okay, so nothing particularly unusual there. We're going to move on to private equity. And we mentioned already at the top of the program about, uh, I mentioned Chrysalis Investments, ticker C-H-R-Y, and they produce some annual results. Um, and those results have attracted uh, a lot of attention, it's fair to say, uh, but not necessarily just for the results. So uh, perhaps you could tell us, first of all, what the results were, and then we can go on and talk about the big issue which has come out about them, which is about the amount of performance fee that has been paid to the trust for its results. So tell us first the results, and then we can talk about that uh, rather controversial issue. Yeah, so these were annual results for Chrysalis Investments for the year ended 30th of September they performed very strongly during that period. So basically, NAV was up 57% in that year. In share price terms, even stronger, actually up 84%. And they ended September with net assets of just short of 1.4 billion. 12 months earlier, they stood about 540 million. They did raise additional capital during that time. And in fact, actually, they've been quite busy building out their portfolio. So they've got 15 holdings or ongoing holdings effectively at the end of September and they made five new investments during that year. But in terms of what's going on in portfolio activity, some things we already knew actually. So they've announced the sale of a company called Embark that's going to be sold to Lloyds Bank, and that will generate cash of about just short of 400 million. That's expected to complete soon. But what really drove the performance on in that year? Well, we saw of the 11 holdings that started the year, I think eight saw valuation uplift. So it was a kind of broadly across the portfolio. But they did particularly well from holdings in a company called Klarna, which represented 28% of net assets at the end of the year. Basically, that was revalued upwards. That company had two funding rounds during the year, including one in June, which valued the company at 5.5 billion US dollars. Um, also, other successes in the period in terms of valuation uplifts, Wise and Starling Bank. The detractor, or the key detractor, was a company called THG, the Hutt Group, uh, which captures uh, the media interest, often in, in the media. But as a result of that strong performance, they generated a performance fee of £112 million. And that would be partially settled, or about 54% of it, will be settled by the issue of new shares. And this was announced again towards the end of last year. Um, and that will be done at a price of £2.67p. That represents a 6% premium to NAV. And that compares with their, their current discount. Well, certainly at the end of Thursday, it was about a 26% discount. So that issuance price, a substantial premium to the current share price. Um, but they've also said that the fees will be subject to a review. And probably the other key point to note is that Chrysalis will become a self-managed investment company this year. Uh, that's expected to happen by the end of June although Jupiter will continue to provide the portfolio management services. Right, so there's a lot to unpick here. First of all, just remind us what the market capitalization is, if you can, of Chrysalis Investments. Uh, so we can see what this uh, performance fee of 112 million, how, what percentage does that represent of the market capitalization? Well, I've got, I've got a market cap of about £1 billion at the moment. So, I mean, broadly speaking, it's about 10%. Right. So about 10% has gone in a performance fee. And 112 million is not peanuts by anybody's standard. 
And that's obviously attracted quite a lot of attention, particularly so because obviously the shares in this trust have been massively derated since the end of this period for which they were reporting, the 30th of September. And as you say, the uh, these shares that were issued in terms of policy were at 267p, which was uh, roughly where the NAV was at that time. But what is the share price today? Well, I've got the share price at the close of Thursday, certainly, and they were at £1.86. I mean, in share price terms, they're down about 24% year to date. So they've clearly had a very tough 2022 so far. Though, you know, it's worth noting that this has been a very successful investment company since their launch, since their IPO to the end of uh, September, at least, they'd generated a compound annual growth rate of 38%. So it has, uh, until recently, at least been highly successful. Right. So, but the other issues that comes out of this is that obviously, uh, because it's mainly a private equity investment trust and it's investing in private companies, so then the performance fee is based on the valuations of those companies at the uh, performance state. And, and uh, I think the board says that there are independent, external independent valuers. Uh, can we look at it? But if you've got something like Klarna, which is 28% of net assets, if that valuation is wrong or subsequently proves to be very high, then I think uh, you know, shareholders might well have a reason to go back to the board and say, well, hang on, this performance fee arrangement isn't working quite as we thought. They've taken all this money and now suddenly we've got a, a something much less successful on our hand. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Simon, but I know you're someone who actually defends performance fees as a, as a way of uh, remunerating managers. But do you not think that there have been some flaws in this particular scheme? So you're right. I do think performance fees have their place that they, they, across the recent years in the investment company sector, there's been a move away from performance fees. Some people have argued that they lead to uh, more complication. But I think to have a well-structured performance fee in place can absolutely be justified. I think in this particular case, the base fee is 0.5%, which I don't think anyone would particularly argue with. But to have a 20% performance fee over an 8% hurdle, and it is subject to a high watermark, does feel probably a little bit out of line. Effectively, it's a private equity performance fee, but this is actually a crossover capital vehicle. So in other words, in private equity funds, that kind of performance fee would kick in on realized profits or when cash had been returned to shareholders when we're talking about uh, limited partnerships and not necessarily um, listed private equity funds. In this particular instance, we're talking about performance fees being triggered on unrealized profits and so unrealized valuation uplifts. And I think that's the issue. I mean, I'm sure the team at Jupiter would say, well, it's crossover capital, so they don't want to be under any compulsion to sell the holding and this would be the same mindset as, say, the Bailey Gifford people who invest in private companies. They want to be able to invest in companies through their journey, through being a private company and then being a listed company without having to sell to trigger. In the case of Bailey Gifford, they don't have performance fees. But you can see there's the same kind of rationale there. So there is a problem. There is a difficulty. And this is not the first time that we've seen a performance fee from Chrysalis. So in the last financial year, there was a £33 million performance fee, which I understand was paid out in cash as well. So I think it's the size of this one that's probably captured people's imagination. But I suspect the board, in common with Jupiter as well, will sit down and look at this. And I wouldn't be surprised to see to see it restructured in some way. Yes, I mean, I suppose you could say that I think you know half of the performance fee has been paid in shares and those shares have really lost about a third of their value. So they're going to have to work quite hard to see that uh, turn into real money, so to speak. But having said that, there's still the 56 million, which is being paid and uh, for a trust that has subsequently performed very poorly. That's just bad optics, I think, apart from anything else. It's perhaps bad PR, if you like, but they can necessarily help the timing of that. Uh, I mean, if the year end had been, shall we say, today, in January rather than uh, September, it would have been a different figure, right? So we, you know, there's an element of arbitrariness about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that the performance is on the NAV rather than the share price, which obviously yeah. is a different thing. And it is subject to, as you mentioned earlier, kind of third-party valuations. So as and when these things go through financing rounds, the underlying companies, that's invariably the value that the third-party experts adopt. So it's a little bit out of the manager's hands, or it should be completely out of the manager's hands, to be honest. And so the other final question of this one is, uh, well, for the moment, because I think this one might rumble on a bit. I mean, this idea of becoming a self-managed investment company, why would Jupiter want to go along with that if they've... uh, just collected a nice check of some of which they've had to give to the managers of the trust. Yeah, I suspect this is being driven by the board rather than Jupiter, to be perfectly honest. So it's worth remembering that the Chrysalis investments came from Marion, global investors, so only joined the Jupiter stable relatively recently. And one suspects that the board feel quite autonomous. I mean, the managers, Nick Williamson and Richard Watts, have been there since the start, so they moved across from Marion. But I suspect the board, in their own minds at least, quite clear um, are quite happy to be seen as distinct from, from Jupiter. So to become a self-managed investment company is a kind of natural extension of that. Okay, so we're presuming there'll be some proposals about how that's going to happen in due course. Let's move on then and talk about 3i Group, another private equity trust, which, uh, as we know, has been also very successful, where most of the value, or at least a lot of the value, comes from one single investment that's been hugely successful. So what's the latest from them? So this was an update for um, the Q3 period for 2021. Um, basically, it was another positive period for 3i Group. So the NAV was up 7% in that time, and that was despite negative foreign exchange movements. And as you mentioned, action which has just been a tremendous uh, investment for 3i, continues to perform. The valuation was increased by 7% for that company. It's now, that stake is worth 6.5 billion. And that was a reflection of the fact that Action's sales over the last 12 months were up 23% in EBITDA. So in profit terms, it was up 36%. So really Action kind of driving 3i Group's NAV. But in addition to that, they made a number of investments, things they've already uh, disclosed to the market, such as Dutch Bakery, Mepal, and Insight Software. So they're still building out their private equity book. And they've also had some uh, divestments as well. Moving on, then we're going to talk next about uh, Standard Life Private Equity while we're in the private equity arena. And what have they had to say? They announced annual results for the 12 months to the end of September last year. Um, and a strong set of results for Standard Life Private Equity. Their NAV total return was up just short of 38% in that year. That compared to a rise of just short of 28% for the FTSE All Share Index. In share price terms, it was even better, actually. The share price total return up 60.6%. So a very strong set of results. Quite busy in terms of the portfolio as well. So they're building up the co-investments side. They made 10 co-investments in the period and they now represent about 11% of the portfolio. Um, but they've also made commitments to new primary funds as well and been involved in a couple of secondary transactions. Uh, unsurprisingly, they do quite well on the distribution fronts as well. So in other words, cash returns them as a result of realizations and refinancing. But uh, this investment trust company has been going 20 years now and actually their net assets now exceed over a a billion pounds. It's also worth noting as well that they're looking to change their name. That's obviously subject to shareholder approval at the AGM, but they're looking to adopt the name Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities Trust. And I'm guessing there aren't many vowels in that one. Okay, so obviously that implies that there's some kind of discount movement uh, affecting satellite private equity if the share price has done so much better than the NAV. So is this a general trend across the private equity uh, sector. We've uh, obviously uh, talked about how the discounts have been stayed stubbornly wide in many cases, but has that been the case recently and has it been affected by the recent market uh, turbulence? 
Yeah, so it's a good point. So uh, bearing in mind that these were results to the end of September last year, and certainly in the last three or four months of last year, we did see discounts narrow across the listed private equity space. Uh, a number of the names, um, obviously including Standard Life private equity, but a number of the names performed very strongly in the second half of last year. And that was really a result of a strong investment activity, uh, a number reported good realizations of good uplifts, and also um, a real bounce back in underlying earnings as well. Um, obviously, it's a slightly more difficult environment so far this year. We have seen some discounts widen out, but actually Standard Life private equity for what it's worth uh, seems to be holding up pretty well. There, are, I've got them on my screen about a 17% discount, although within their peer groups, so looking at the fund of funds, you can find those funds on um, you know, Harper Vest Global Private Equity on a 25% discount, Pantheon on a 27% discount. So, you know, quite substantial ICG Enterprise, I should mention, on a 20% discount. So we have seen some of these names derated in the last month or two. We just got time to uh, mention Oakley Capital Investments, also in private equity, uh, ticker OCI, and they've had a trading update, I think. Yeah, that's right. So this was a trading update uh, for the year to the end of December, funnily enough. Uh, and basically, it was another good year. So this is a familiar story with, with some of these private equity names. We'll probably hit the results season in kind of March, uh, April time. But uh, in terms of the trading update, they had an NAV total return in 2021. They were up 35%. In share price terms, even better, up 48%. And their net assets stood at £961 million at the end of the year. And again, it's similar to what I was just saying about Standard Life. EBITDA growth has really been the key driver. And a few holdings such as IU Group and Tech Insights um, did particularly well. But uh, Oakley Capital very much focused on European companies in the tech, consumer and education sectors. Okay, so that's uh, all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank you, Simon, for your always uh, helpful comments. We will be back next week and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing how this uh, current choppy market plays out from here. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.